He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not steadily look at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is... There is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Father, till the soil of our hearts so that we are receptive, vulnerable to your word. May your word go down deep into us. And may it bring forth the fruit that you desire. We will listen and we will obey. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Most people who sing it don't understand it. And most of those who understand it don't mean it. It's one of 300 songs written by a man with a very colorful past. The only one of all those songs still sung with any frequency. It's arguably the most popular song in the history of the English language. Probably sung more often by more people than any song ever. It's become an American folk anthem covered by almost every vocalist of whatever genre. A feel-good, though kind of melancholy song, thought to be appropriate for any and all occasions. A kumbaya kind of song, sung by people to connect with each other and in a vague, ambiguous way to connect with something bigger than themselves. The words of the song are very personal with the first-person pronouns of I and me and my and we and us and ours prominent in the song. And the ideas of the song are theological. They describe and celebrate the action of God. And these theological ideas are not out on the fringes of religious thought, but they are core ideas. They're central and foundational to an understanding of who God is and who people are in relationship to God. That song, if you haven't guessed it by now, is Amazing Grace, written by John Newton, a converted slave trader, written by Newton to express his amazement at where God's grace had met him and where that grace had taken him and where that grace was yet to take him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. The vast majority of people singing that song don't understand it as Newton intended it. It's a personal expression a testimony, really, of the singer's experience with God. And if they would understand it, they wouldn't mean it in any way close to what Newton meant. First of all, we human beings stumble over the word wretch. We don't like identifying ourselves as wretched. Uh, Secondly, we don't think of ourselves as ever being lost and blind, in need of salvation, and in need of being found, and in need of recovering our sight. This is really a Christian song, and it's sad that it's been co-opted by worldlings and made to mean whatever they feel it means. Properly understood, it reinforces the truth taught by the passage in front of us this morning as God's word. That point is that people don't see the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ because they cannot see the truth. 
according to these verses from 2 Corinthians, they are blind to the truth of the good news. And until that blindness is removed by God, they will never be saved, they will never be found. In two different ways, Paul says that unbelievers are spiritually blind, no matter how frequently or how fervently they might sing Amazing Grace. First, Paul says that there is a veil placed over their hearts so they cannot understand the gospel. This is verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Paul has Moses in mind here. He describes Moses as the minister of the Old Covenant. When Moses received the law, he came down from the mountain with his face glowing after that encounter with the Lord. But that glow kept fading away because God never intended for it to be permanent. And so Moses veiled his face so the people could not see the glory fading away. And that veil becomes a symbol of Jewish unbelief. The early church was deeply troubled by the rejection of Jesus by his own people, the Jews. If he is the Messiah, why did God's people reject him? Why did they not believe in him? And why were Paul and his partners in mission spurned and even persecuted by God's people everywhere they went? A major part of another letter of Paul, the book of Romans, uh, chapters 9 and 11, answers that question about the place of God's people in the plan of God. And you can check it out in our Nova class on Romans that meets in the fireside room at 11 o'clock. I don't think they're yet to chapter 9, but they'll be there in a few weeks. But here in 2 Corinthians, we have an answer to that question in 25 words or less. They do not believe in Jesus because there is a veil on their hearts. Now, the reasoning is something like this. Just as Moses had to wear a veil to keep the Israelites from seeing the fading glory of God, whom Moses met in the administration of the Old Covenant, so a veil is over the eyes of those who don't believe. So they cannot see the lasting glory of the New Covenant that Jesus brought with his death and resurrection, of which covenant Paul and his co-workers are ministers. Did you get all that? I know it's uh, hard to understand. They will continue, unbelievers will continue to try to follow that old covenant even though its temporary glory has been replaced by the never-fading glory of the new covenant that Jesus has brought. I know that the reasoning sounds very tortured to us, but that's what Paul is saying here. There's a veil over the minds and hearts and spiritual vision of unbelievers that keeps them from seeing and understanding and embracing 
the truth. And that veil remains in place to this day. Because of that veil, they are blind and they cannot see. Secondly, Paul says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's verse 4 of chapter 4. The God of this age is Satan, the devil, the sworn enemy of God and his people, who, in the words of Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Notice that Paul says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That means that even the light is darkness to them. When the light shines, their minds remain dark. They see nothing. The good news is nonsense to them. They cannot understand how one man's death 2,000 years ago could possibly have anything to do with them. And the resurrection, the resurrection is a bit of mythic nonsense to them, for after all, dead people stay dead. Their minds are blinded. The truth never dawns. The light never penetrates. Another preacher commented on this. When they hear about Christians praying together, it seems like psychological self-delusion. When they see Christians going as missionaries to reach Muslims and Hindus, it strikes them at best as a great waste of time and at worst as a kind of cultural imperialism. How dare you tell anyone your religion is better? And when we protest that it's not about religion, it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ, who's alive today, those words sound like pious nonsense to them. They just don't see it. They don't get it. They cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But here's the good news. God gives sight to the blind. He makes blind people see. He is greater than the evil one, the prince of darkness, who uses his great craft and power to try to keep people in the dark with him. God is greater. God is good. God is gracious. Paul said, God who said, let, shine, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of of Christ. Paul is saying that the same God who called light into being with a word, who in that first act of creation pierced the darkness of the world with light, caused the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ to shine into our hearts. It's an act of his amazing grace, you see. Was blind But now I see. We see the light only because the God of grace and mercy opens our eyes and causes us to see. David Crowder and his band have 
recently recorded an old Negro spiritual song that was sung uh, long ago back in the middle of the last century by Hank Williams and uh, Johnny Cash. Uh, The song goes, I've walked in darkness, clouds covered me. I had no idea where the way out could be. Then came the sunrise and rolled back the night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. God gives light to the spiritually blind. This means that we ought to continue to pray and to work for the salvation of our family and friends. We realize that only God can save them. We can witness to them, but we can't witness them into the kingdom. We can tune up our persuasive arguments, but we cannot argue them into heaven. We can live lives of morality and integrity before them, but we can't lifestyle evangelism them into a right relationship with God, into abundant and eternal life. That's God's work. He and he alone can do it. But he can do it. And so we keep praying for our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and nephews, for family members, for friends and neighbors and colleagues at work. In fact, we continue to pray for anybody we genuinely care about that they would see the light, that God would find them. We we pray, Lord, open the eyes of their hearts, make them see, help them understand and receive this life-changing, destiny-defining, glorious message, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But notice that Paul does not abandon his work Because salvation is God's work. He and Titus and Timothy are ministers of the new covenant, as are all of us who follow Christ. They have been sent to deliver the good news. They are apostles of Jesus Christ. He has sent them to carry that good news. And deliver it, they do, to cities all over the Roman empire of their day, including this city of Corinth. And there in Corinth, some once lost are found, some blind now see. And Paul, since he's been put on the defensive about his ministry there in Corinth, reminds the Corinthians again of both the content of his message and the manner of his delivering the message. He says, in effect, the integrity with which we lived before you backs up the message. This is the first verse of chapter 4. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 
And what he is saying there is not only did his words convey the message, but his manner of speaking and his actions and behavior among the Corinthians conveyed that message. We renounce shameful ways. We do not use deception. We do not distort the word of God. J.B. Phillips paraphrased verse 2, We use no hocus-pocus, no clever tricks, no dishonest manipulation of God's word. Paul is saying we didn't use any rhetorical tricks, no handy-dandy, surefire conversational gambits, no trick questions, no clever gotchas. On the contrary, we set forth the truth plainly. We spoke and acted always realizing that we were in, within God's sight, knowing that God is watching and listening to us. We spoke so that others can trust what we say. And furthermore, Paul, Paul says, we proclaim Christ and not ourselves. That's the point of verse 5 of chapter 4. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He is saying it is not and it never was about us. It's all about Jesus Christ. He's the glorious one with this glorious message of a new relationship with God. We are merely servants of the glorious one sent by him to you that the glorious light of the gospel would pierce the darkness of your lives and make blind eyes see. And so Paul's attitude is, you know, it really doesn't matter what you Corinthians think of me as long as you make much of Jesus. The point is salvation, and salvation belongs to the Lord. In this matter of saving the blind worldlings all around us, our part is to pray and to proclaim to live with integrity and to speak boldly and directly, to give so that others might go, to sometimes go ourselves, to serve others for Jesus' sake. And as we do that, God in his grace will open the eyes of the blind so that God's work in Jesus makes sense to them and they see and believe the truth. And when we do our part, the veil is removed. Lost people turn to the Lord. Blind eyes now see. And his light shines in hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in Jesus Christ. That's God's plan of salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace to us. You made blind eyes see. You shined the light. We are eternally grateful. Help us, Father, to understand our part. 
to pray, to proclaim, to live, to give, so that the light shines in the darkness, so that blind eyes see. And may the love of God the Father and the grace of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the power and the help of his Holy Spirit go with us from this place and forevermore.